Welcome to Short Course, Episode 70, for June 17th, 2020. I'm your host, Ben Barry. I want to catch up this week on the podcast about a match that I shot a couple weeks ago. And the match in question is the South Carolina section match, which traditionally is early. It's in the spring. Um, usually in in April, I think sometimes maybe once it was in the last weekend of March, but usually it's a, it's a spring match, which works well. Generally, South Carolina, North Carolina, we get we get a lot of crossover, and so it works. It's worked out well to have the North Carolina match tra- traditionally in September or October. South Carolina match goes early. This year, however, of course, uh, due to both uncertainty around matches as well as uh, government regulations. And for the, the purposes of this discussion, it is important to note that the club that has held the South Carolina match is actually just over the border in North Carolina. It's a, it's a club out on the coast. Um, they're, you know, right on the line. And so they might as well be in, uh, in South Carolina, practically speaking, even if it is, you know, as close for some North Carolina folks as South Carolina folks, them's the breaks. Um, I, I don't have any, any inside knowledge, but as best I can tell, basically none of the other clubs in South Carolina were willing or able to uh, to take over the match. And so this new club that started a couple of years ago, Low Country Preserve, which they are, I mean, I think doing about as well as any upstart club could starting in an area without, uh, you know, a ton of local shooters um, trying to, you know, put on a, a range, put on a match at a range that traditionally has not had USPSA. It's a, it's, it seems like it's primarily a, a skeet range, you know, the big five foot sign uh, coming off the highway, coming off the road when you drive up is like a breaking steel target and a bird flying by. But they're they're really, I think, doing a great job of trying to stand a club up from basically nothing. And so they this is the second year in a row that they've actually stepped up to to host the South Carolina match. And, you know, they're not stupid. They know that the weather <laughs> at the coast, especially once hurricane season starts, it, it gets it gets pretty rainy. And thus the motivation for having the match fairly early in the year. In this case, it, this year it was originally scheduled for the last weekend in April due to, like I said, government restrictions around gatherings of, of people as well as just general uncertainty about what the, the future held. They made the decision fairly early on in the, the COVID pandemic shutdown to postpone. It ended up being pushed a month, so it ended up being the last weekend in May. So two and a half weeks ago now as I'm, as I'm talking about this, if that gives you any idea of sort of how backlogged I am on topics. So talking about this match, um, I don't know, you know, it's always weird when you're in the center of something, when you actually attend it. It's hard to know how, uh, how the word got out about this match. But I would say the, the thumbnail sketch of the match was in the week leading up to the match, the club, which the uh, the match director, Mike Fritz, uh, jokingly said, or maybe this isn't a joke. I don't actually know. I assumed it was a joke. It sounded like hyperbole. He told me that, you know, the whole range is approximately six inches above sea level, so the water's got nowhere to go. And the range is, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes from the beach, maybe not even that as the crow flies. Uh, the range got about a foot of water, about, about 12 inches. Um, I heard different numbers, 10, 15, but, but it, was, it was a lot of water. And... I I mean, I worked the 2016, I believe it was, North Carolina section match 
at Sir Walter Gun Club where we got not nearly that much water, uh, but it rained steadily the whole time. And, and it was, I mean, even, even a great club like Sir Walter that has really great facilities and really nice bays that have been dug and flattened and everything. I mean, even there, it's still dirt. Dirt's dirt. Turns into mud when it gets wet. Um, so I, I don't know that any club really could have withstood getting a foot of water. And I appreciated that the, the, the match staff did what they could to salvage the match. Now, the really controversial part was this was a one day, in some cases, I think, I know the staff shot it in one day. Um, I know I shot it in a half-day format. So it was Saturday morning, Saturday evening. I don't think there was a Sunday. Um, so it was a it was a fairly small match, and it was 11 stages. And they the, the sort of controversial bit was they ended up throwing out three of them. Um, now, one of them, from what I had heard, uh, was it, it was actually just straight up inexperience. It was just not having the knowledge of how to run staff day and then competitors through a match and a, a stage with moving targets. Um, in this particular case, it was a, it was a couple of floppers or max traps, basically targets that, that come up from the ground. And one of the things they teach you in CRO class, if you have it with a, with a good instructor is when the staff shoot, you put one target on every target stand at the end of staff day, you leave that target on there. In some cases, you know, some guys recommend just sort of cutting off the head just so it doesn't droop and get water all over everything. But you leave that one target on the stand, you mark it, but you don't take it off if you can possibly avoid it because that becomes your template. That is your golden record of where, of what the target presentation should look like, how high, how low, how left, how right, whatever. That's your record. And you staple, for each session after that, you staple a target over it. Competitors shoot that target. You pull it off, you put another one on after each session, and you rotate the front target, but the, the back target stays. And they did that for these movers. The problem is, for movers, you have to put two targets on them, even for the staff day, because movers will always move differently with two pieces of cardboard. Now, I mean, I say always. Swingers, maybe not so much, because the, the extra thickness of the cardboard won't really make a difference, but still, for competitive equity, it's the right thing to do. Now, with something like a, a flopper target, a max trap, anything where the, 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 the face of the target is moving, obviously the, the, the extra thickness, the extra rigidity, it's going to slow the target down, and so you get a different target presentation. So in that case, it was just a matter, I, you know, I, I don't know who the ROs are, I don't care. It, it's not about calling out names. That was just a, a situation where I think clubs, as you gain more institutional knowledge, as you have more CROs that have worked big matches. I mean, you know, people are going to learn that lesson. Everybody who was involved at that stage, involved with that match, that lesson's learned. At the end of the day, everybody still volunteers. Yes, you can, you know, get some amount of training and, and it's going to be a long class where a lot of information is thrown at you. If you've even taken the CRO class, if you even took it with a particularly instructive RMI, honestly, some of them aren't. Um, so you can get better or worse instruction. And it just, it is what it is. At, a, at an 11-stage match, you put in movers, you put in things like that. Sometimes this happens. Sometimes you lose a stage. So I don't know if that happened first or last. I don't know the exact timeline. Like I said, I shot Saturday afternoon. And so in my case, by the time I got there, what I knew was there were 11 stages. One got tossed due to inconsistency. And then two more had been removed due to mud and safety concerns. And... I heard a 
good amount of grumbling about this, and I think it is entirely unfounded. The, the complaint seemed to be somewhat along the lines of, oh, eight stages, well, like, we might as well shoot a club match. And to me, this, this entirely misses the point of shooting a big match, shooting a level two match. So one thing is, especially for, for a state match, uh, you want to, this is sort of the chance for everybody in the state to get together and throw down and kind of who gets the bragging rights for the year. So you bring everybody together. In the case of this match, it pulls people from multiple states away, as most level twos do. And so even though there were only eight stages, there were still two production grandmasters, two limited grandmasters. I think in open, there were something like eight, although one of them was Tony Cowden, so call it seven and an asterisk. There was still a high level of competition. Additionally, a level two match, which you're driving all the way for what you are paying the extra money for, is more than just more rounds. It's more than just more stages. It's not about, you know, who can make the biggest match, who can who can have the biggest hose fest. I mean, to put it this way, I would rather shoot a, I would rather pay to shoot a $150 match with eight stages where I have somebody pasting and resetting than get to shoot 12 stages in a single day or whatever. Uh, where I have to, you know, where the squad is pasting their own. Even if you have dedicated ROs, even even just having staff uh, pasting and resetting for you, I think you're going to get a more pure representative example of each competitor's actual skill level if all they have to focus on is preparing themselves, visualizing, and shooting. So having the staff there allows you to get the most out of your performance. And honestly, to me, beyond eight stages in a day, I think you're actually hitting a point of diminishing returns. I don't think you get a... It becomes much more of an endurance challenge if you get above, say, eight or ten stages in a day. And these are USPSA stages. Obviously, apply some kind of adjustment factor for IPSC stages, which on average are shorter. So, you know, if you told me I was shooting ten IPSC stages, you know, uh, call it five short courses, three mediums, and two longs or something in a day... No big deal. That's a lot more tolerable. But if these are, you know, 24, 28, 32 round USPSA stages, eight of those in a day is plenty for me, honestly. And especially for clubs. So I, I'm very lucky here in Central North Carolina. We have a number of clubs where they will actually design stages every month. They'll have six or eight stages designed in SketchUp, go out, build them the day before, or it'll be, you know, a match uh, at a range that also runs three gun matches. And so they'll you know, reuse some of those walls and, and target presentations, but they're they're very thorough, well-built, thought-through, interesting options type stages. I'm well aware from watching match videos that a lot of club matches aren't like that, and in a lot of places, you know, you show up and it's whoever, you know, okay, Jim, you set up a stage on Bay 1, Steve, you set up one on Bay 2, you know, go to town, when they're all built, we'll start shooting. And in that scenario, obviously, you're going to get better quality stages that have been designed, they've been vetted by NROI, they've been walked through, they've been debugged. They, they are just going to be more interesting tests, ideally. Now, you can argue, and, and I would argue, that in most cases, being vetted by NROI is, is actually negative value. I think the opinion that they exert over stages about what is and isn't a safe challenge and what barriers should and shouldn't be put up, I, I think they're unproductive. Let's, let's call it that. That's a, that's a topic for another day. But at the end of the day, when you 
travel a long distance. And, I'm, you know, it's a state match. I'm not expecting people to drive 8, 10 hours for it. But when you drive the length of North Carolina, the length of South Carolina, you drive four hours for, for a South Carolina state match. If it's eight stages instead of 11, that, that doesn't bother me. The round count, the stage count is not what determines a good match. It's the quality of the stages. It's the quality of the staff. It's the ability of the competitors to just focus on representing their skills as purely as possible. And I will say the staff at this match were, were very hardworking and it was it was nice to just stand just go up to the line, shoot, walk around, see your targets, go fill your mags. I mean the way a well staffed match should be. No no problems there. Moreover, I don't actually know the nature of the safety concerns or what the issue was around the the two stages that got thrown out. I heard one person mention that one of the stages was fine for the the shooting area was fine, but it was basically impossible to run for the staff. And so because there was just too much mud to walk out and and pace the targets in in a timely manner, which, okay, that's fine. If you have a rainy match, your stages are going to run slower. And so if one of the things you can do is toss out those stages that are going to be the biggest backlog and then recycle those staff, which they did. Staff was reassigned to other stages, so the other stages had more people to go around. That makes a lot of logical sense to me. I mean, I, I would not want to be there, you know, sitting behind a, a giant backup, which, as it happened, there ended up being, and there was a lot of consternation about that. And and perhaps, you know, in this particular case, the, the big backup ended up being on a on a double bay stage where it was it was two short courses on the same bay. And that, that just ended up being the stage that, that ran slower than all the rest. In retrospect, would it maybe have been better for the match to toss out one of those two short courses? Probably. I'm not trying to armchair quarterback here, but I'm just saying now that we can sort of see how things ran, it probably would have been better to go ahead and chop the match all the way down to seven stages. I, I know for me, when we got to that stage, this is jumping a, a bit ahead to, to personal performance, but when we got to that stage, which is our second stop of the day we got there and there were two squads ahead of us on that bay i guess some of the morning i heard something about the morning squads still weren't done and so the afternoon squads hadn't even started yet and so we ended up sitting there for at least an hour and this is middle of the afternoon it was you know 80 something high humidity and so it, it, even just sitting there sort of you know tired you out to a certain degree and and so having that big backup I think it definitely did not do me any favors. I can't say anything about anybody else, any other competitors. Uh, but I know for me, it's sort of the the that hitting that slump and having to get back out of it and, and get back into the groove, it didn't help me. Now, is it their fault? No, I should have dealt with that problem. But if it wasn't a problem in the first place, I would have been okay with that. If we'd walked up there and, and people were talking about, oh, those, you know, nine and 10, they looks like they might, you know, they're going to have to throw those out. Well, maybe they should have thrown one of them out. I I. Again, I think that having seven really good stages would still have the right winners coming out on top. Even at a even at a seven or eight stage match, unless you've got actual legitimate multiple national level talents that need many stages to differentiate themselves from each other, you you just you don't need that many stages. Does nationals need more stages to differentiate the best shooters in the country from each other? Yes. Does the South Carolina section? Probably not. So you know, in terms of keeping the flow going, the the stage count just doesn't matter to me. And moreover, 
if there was actually a, a fairness concern with those stages, if the rain had actually changed their safety or the ability for competitors to safely negotiate them, if it was a situation where people who shot earlier had a were able to move faster because the ground was firmer, I, I, I have no idea if any of this is true, but I'm just going to assume that if, if there's a chance that some of those stages might have had their competitive equity um, unfairly changed over the course of, of just the conditions changing more so than other stages, I would actually rather the stages that are unfair be thrown out so that the stages that are remaining can actually represent the skill of the shooters. The idea that it's better to have 10 stages where two of them are unfair and some of the competitors get enough of an advantage that it might swing the overall results versus having the bare minimum, you know, eight stages, however many stages that are actually fair, it's ludicrous. You, you do not gain anything unless your only metric of success is round count or stage count. You don't gain anything by keeping in stages that might skew the results. So this idea that the, the match was somehow diminished by them tossing the stages, uh, I just, it doesn't, doesn't sit right with me. I think there are there, I've seen matches, I've been to matches with range masters and match directors that are obstinate and clearly do not want to throw out stages even when they're a backlog, even when they are problematic. And I, I, I find that a much more cowardly position than being willing to say, for the good of the match, it's we're just going to cut our losses on these, redistribute the staff, and try and give everybody a reasonable experience that is as close of an approximation to what we had originally planned given the fact that we've had a foot of water dumped on us. I. I have no problems with that. And the last thing I'll say on, on this particular topic about weather and what you can and can't do, the match can't control the weather. They can't affect what is going to be dropped, how much water is going to be dropped on their range. There are certain preparations you can make if you can get a lot of gravel, you know, sure, that's great. But even spreading a truckload of gravel over a bay or two, I mean, that the stuff disappears pretty quick if into thick mud. There, there's only so much you can do. But at the end of the day, as a competitor, you have 100% control of the weather in the sense that you can decide not to go. If you think the weather is going to be that bad, if you're hearing from people, if you're seeing videos, if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to shoot in the rain, who's just going to complain about, oh, not enough stages or you know how the stages are unfair... You actually have control over the weather in the sense that you can control whether or not you shoot in it. And so I just have no truck for the idea that people are somehow entitled because they pay their match fee to show up, complain, make the match director's life hard, and then feel entitled and, and self-justified. No, I mean, this is not an indoor sport. This is not, we're not playing in arenas. This is an outdoor sport. Sometimes things go sideways. And showing up and making yourself miserable is not going to get you your match feedback. That money is sunk cost. It's already been spent for targets and everything else that, that's required to run a match for paying staff lodging and t-shirts and everything. You're, you're not getting your match feedback. So, you know, get that out of your fantasy land head. But if you see 48 hours before the match, 24 hours before the match that, you know, staff are posting that it's a soupy mess and it's unsafe to shoot and you don't like shooting in the mud, don't shoot in the mud. That's your choice. All right, so I've I've said a lot of things that defend the match, um, you know, and I think Fritz, if you're listening to this, I, I think you put on a good show. The my biggest criticism of the whole thing is three minute walkthroughs. It's just it's it's not it is not appropriate. It's not helpful to competitors. You know, 
especially on if you have a situation where you've got either large stages with lots of options. You guys might remember on the very last episode of this podcast, I talked about how in IPSC, the, the practice of not allowing competitors to look at stages before the match started and only having their designated walkthrough when their squad is on the bay helps to eliminate an entire class of obtuse memory stages. I hate to say it, this match had exactly one of those obtuse memory stages. It was 30 rounds, all alike, hidden in a bunch of walls, and you just had to... I spent probably 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes looking at that one stage alone the morning of. Luckily, I showed up you know, early um, Saturday morning, so in the break between the, the morning squads and afternoon squads, I was able to basically walk it through 10, 20 times and just make sure I, I had, you know, I, I had the order memorized. Uh, but that, I mean, that stage wasn't fun. I don't, I mean, I didn't do particularly well on it. So maybe it's a, it's a test of, of shooting skill. But if that type of stage were deleted from the sport, I, I wouldn't miss it. But the idea that that stage is remotely practical to shoot with three minutes to look it through with seven or eight other guys in a shooting area that is, let's call it 10 yards by five yards, it's not happening. It's just, it, it's not realistic. Now, should all USPSA stages be be reasonably completable with the given walkthrough without having to show up early? I think so. I think that's a good standard. Now, sure, are, are there stages where it would benefit from getting to look at it more? No no problem. I'm not saying every stage needs to be run to the port, shoot the targets through it, run to the port, shoot the targets through it. But as a baseline, a reasonably competent B-class shooter should be able to come up with a decent stage plan for the stage in the time allowed. And I just, three minutes, it just, it doesn't do it. Now, I think I understand why. Again, this match was being run in a half-day format with 11 stages. So on paper, if you've got 11, 10, I think because they doubled them up, it was 10 stops. So on paper, by shaving two minutes per stop, that shaves you, or that saves you 20 minutes per morning and afternoon shift. I just, I don't see it. I would rather, you know, I'd rather each squad be one person smaller and increase the match fee by that much. And I'd rather shoot on a seven man squad and get a five minute walkthrough so that that eighth person who would have taken three minutes to shoot, we get, you know, six minutes, three minutes in, the, in their three minutes, whatever it is. I, I just, I, if you have to raise the match fee, do that. Please do that. I'm driving all this way. I'm paying the money. Uh, don't, don't ask me to step up and, and look at a stage and shoot it competently at a high level in, in three minutes. And and I I don't think I'm alone in this. I think the better you get, the more you appreciate getting to look through stages. And especially in the case of either, let's see off the top of my head, so 9 and 10 uh, were the ones where there was a the huge backup. So when I went to go look in the morning, I couldn't see them because there was a huge backup. Obviously, when we got there, there was a backup. So I didn't get to look at either of them uh, until... Our squad was up. I happened to be first on that uh, on that stage, so I went first on both of those, and I got you know ninety seconds to look through each one. It's it's such now you know is a ten minute walkthrough twice as good as a five minute walkthrough? No, but the difference between three and even five is it is it is significant. It's the difference between finding all the targets and actually being able to come up with a good stage plan, weigh some trade offs, that kind of thing. Again. The other benefit of having a smaller squad, if you've got one less person there, which again, I would gladly pay for, uh, is just the fact that you can, you have fewer people sort of crowding in the shooting area. So 
I, I know this probably isn't a popular opinion. I know a lot of people don't see the big deal about about the walkthroughs, and this just seems like a GM prima donna thing. But I I have to say I am I'm not a fan, and I I think it is false economy. But it is what it is. I I did my best with it. You know, in in most cases, it really it was only nine in ten where it even mattered. Every other stage, I showed up three hours before I was due to start shooting because I knew that the walkthrough would be basically useless, right? I mean, if it's a three-minute walkthrough, you you might as well just say you get you get your walkthrough when you're the on-deck shooter, and otherwise, if you didn't show up, if you didn't show up before this match to walk through the stages in the hour lunch break or, you know, look at them, like, you you were not competitive. And so, to me, the, the three-minute walkthrough is, is almost even a fig leaf. It, it, it would almost be better just to remove it and just make it crystal clear that you got to show up early and look at these stages if you want a chance to be competitive. And then, and at least we would be honest and we'd, we'd sort of all be on the same page. And I'm, I'm speaking very harshly about this. This is not a personal criticism. I, I am, like I said, Fritz, if you're listening to this, I, I like you, dude. This is something that I've seen at lots of other matches. I think it is a very appealing trend. I think it is, it is something that I want to very firmly come out in opposition of just because I think it is, it is seductive, but counterproductive. One other sort of comment that I will make just on the, the match generally, which honestly isn't even really so much a comment on the match as so much as the, let's say, the environment that the, the match is in. Um, I don't know exactly the, you know, the nature of what the, the match's staff package was. I, I think it was fairly good as state matches go. Um, but there definitely was, there was less experience or less organization in, in running some of the stages than you would hope. And I know some of that was probably because the the staff on each stage was being shuffled around. As someone who has CRO'd a stage at the North Carolina State match for three different years, I, I can definitely say you get into a rhythm, you get into a groove when you figure out, you know, how your crew works. People start to catch, you know, catch up with each other's uh, when you know when someone's running behind, they know when to jump over and, and help paste a couple extra targets, that kind of thing. And it, it seemed, again, I'm assuming this is because the staff was moved around. It seemed like a lot of the stages never got a chance to really gel like that. And I think at the end of the day, um, there also just isn't at this particular club because it's sort of a newer club. It's I think further away. It wasn't. It's not really local to anybody except the, the couple of shooters that that shoot there locally. Um, they probably. Again, I don't know, but they, they probably had a harder time pulling experienced staff. And I would the only thing that I'll say about that is I'm sure they took everybody qualified that that was willing to work. I don't think they were turning anybody away. Um, but I will say I think if you have the opportunity as a competitor, if you're if you are listening to this, first of all, if you're new to the sport, it is not too soon to try to find a match to to volunteer to work. Even if you're not a certified RO. If you've got a match near you and you want to get some experience, volunteer. They they will find a place for you. You will learn an enormous amount. Hopefully, they can set you up with you know a squad with somebody who has, who's a teacher and has a lot of experience, and you can learn from them. If not, you'll just get a lot of reps. You'll just get to see how the sausage is made and, and learn some stuff. If you're a serious competitor, I I think that you should make an effort to at least work one match a year. I, my, the way I've chosen to do it is I work my state match. Does that hurt my chances of actually making a run at the state champion title for whatever that's worth? It does. But at the end of the day, I, I think particularly I want 
people to see North Carolina as a as a match worth making the trip for, as a high quality match. Um, but even if you don't have that element of sort of local pride, I think if you are a regular competitor, you you should work at least one match a year. You should basically set aside one of your you know six, eight, however many major matches you're going to go to, and say, okay, this is the one where I give back. Because at the end of the day, the overlap between good competitors and good ROs is enormous. The things that you see, the things that you catch, the things that you pick up on with a campaign, a trained competitor's eye are the things that help a good RO. It's the, the ROs that don't know other people's guns, they don't know other people's movement patterns that, that just sort of follow along or they, they don't know how much space to give a shooter because they, they don't understand why you know somebody would, would be bothered by being crowded. Just all these little things that that you can that I think good competitors just get intuitively and can share. I think as a as a competitor you have a lot to bring to as an RO, even if you don't have extensive RO experience. Um, if you can, you know, if you're if there's one in your section, take the RO class. Uh, I don't think it'll, you know, people think, oh, it'll teach me how to game the rules. No, it, it really won't. Um, but I think it will at least give you a deeper appreciation for why some of the things are the way they are in USPSA. It might resolve some questions that you've had. You know, maybe you can talk to the instructor and, and get some answers about, oh, is this actually legal? You know, where is this actually defined? You know, you might, you, you'll, at the very least, you'll, you know, figure out things when you've asked people, oh, is this legal or not? And they say yes or no. You'll actually know where in the rule book to look for that and know it for yourself and actually believe it, not because you heard it hearsay, but because you actually know where it is in the rule book. Is a total aside, I think part of the reason there's been so little um, pushback on this whole digital rulebook thing and stopping the, the printed rulebooks is because 90% of USPSA members don't use them. They just let them gather dust and they just trust their buddy's interpretation of the rules that you know might be three rulebooks out of date. And so a lot of people just don't care. And so I think that was that was an easy sell for headquarters to, to make. But I mean, I still think it's the wrong decision, but that's that's another topic entirely. But what I'm saying is, whether you're new to the sport, whether you're you just like to compete and you know shoot a couple matches, big matches a year, and shoot some club matches, or you're a serious competitor, I think everybody who's serious about the sport should should work at least one match a year, if for no other reason than than just so that there is this talent pool that match directors have to draw on. I mean, it it's a dirty little secret, maybe I, I don't know, but I I don't know of any match that has had to turn away staff that, that has literally hit their cap on staff and said, Nope, we're good. You can always use someone else to help out. And so I, I think it is an element of sort of being a, a part of the virtuous cycle that is his hobby to give back because it, it really doesn't take that many staff, especially if you've got a really good CRO who can break down the stage and assign clear responsibilities, or you've got a team that can work together really clearly and, and, you know, break down a rhythm where, you know, one guy goes straight to the back and resets the steal and then pastes coming back forward. And the other guy, you know, follows the scorekeeper around and pace going up range to down range. I mean, you, you can you can really run some really efficient stages without that many staff if they are staff who, you know, can really move fast and hustle. And usually that's going to be your younger competitors. If you've got a couple of people mixed in there, they can be the ones that are doing all the running and you can have you know, folks with more mobility challenges pasting the closer targets, stuff like that. I mean, you you can make it work if you, the more people you have, and it really doesn't take a whole mountain of people, but the more competitors and the more just people of all different backgrounds, not the people who 
work 20 matches a year, then things get better. So how did the match go for me? Definitely not as well as I was hoping. I was uh, one of two production GMs, and I ended up coming in third in the division behind uh, a GM and another masterclass shooter. So it definitely uh, was not my best performance, but I don't think it was un... I don't think it was unrepresentative of how I actually shot on the day of one. I mean, one mistake in hindsight that I made was uh, when plans changed and it, it shifted from um, my wife and I driving down together to shoot the match together because of a, a injury she sustained. I ended up driving on my own and, and shooting solo. Uh, I didn't adjust the schedule at all. And I'm I'm not a morning person, and so the the plan was to drive down to the match, walk around, look at stages, get there with enough time to, to sort of circulate around, see all the stages, and then be ready to shoot in the afternoon. And I didn't adjust that schedule, and I just I just didn't get enough sleep. I I was by the time, so you know, we shot our first stage at 1:30. We were done there, let's say at two o'clock, and then we went to that big backup uh, around uh, stages nine and ten. And we probably didn't shoot for another hour. It was probably three o'clock before we we shot nine and ten. And there again, it was it was just you know I've been sitting in the shade for an hour, and then step up, you got three minutes to look at two stages. And by the way, you're up first, Ben. And so uh, I ended up I ended up scoring a mic on each stage by you know an inch. One was one was in a barrel, and one was in a hardcover. But it was still enough that after that, it just it it didn't. Um, between sort of the physical effort of walking around in the mud and the the fact that I just hadn't had gotten up way too early, which, and honestly, I had more time than I needed to walk around. Um, I, I I just I didn't adjust that the way I should have. I just shot the rest of the match just kind of slow. I just I wasn't aggressive. I didn't have any sort of sense of urgency. I was very conscious minded. I'm also I would say not not as far along in my training cycle as I would have hoped. I, I still am very consciously doing particular things in my technique, particularly drawing the gun. Well, I mean, drawing the gun, gripping the gun, uh, and and reloading are all still pretty pretty front of mind for me. And so I, I was, you can sort of see the wheels turning in my match video uh, a lot of times where I'm just, I'm sitting on sight pictures, just confirming them two and three times. And uh, it was just slow. You know, it wasn't particularly bad. Uh, those two mics, again, by... Small margins, but enough to score. Uh, those two small mics were, I on, were my only penalties for the day. Uh, and then otherwise, I think I only had two or three deltas. So the, the overall points shot was all right. Um, there were a couple of stages where I just kind of got a little loose with the Charlies. Uh, but again, overall, uh, off the top of my head, I want to say it was 91, 92% of points, something like that. So it wasn't it wasn't crazy and accurate. It was just slow. Um, I just, I wasn't trained up. And then, you know, when it, when... When the mud happened and I saw how how bad it was, um, and I sort of shifted my mind into, okay, well, you know, it's muddy. Uh, you just got to kind of get through this. The heat, the lack of sleep, I, I sort of went into, I don't know, some kind of mental kind of forced march mode where I was going to get through this. I was going to shoot my best. And I did. Like, I shot okay. I didn't I didn't make any egregious mistakes. It just it was just slow, um, and so and definitely not the, the performance I was hoping for. But honestly, the the one that I probably could have expected um, in the the two weeks leading up to it. Uh, in each of those two weeks, I only ended up having two dry fire sessions per week. I'm 
just because of other time commitments. And so that, I mean, that I got, I got what I deserved in terms of practice and preparation, both in literal dry fire and live fire practice. Uh, but then also in terms of sort of preparation the, the night before the day of, um, in terms of sort of planning the schedule and, and just trying to adjust. I, I think I, I had an unrealistic idea of what an additional 30 minutes or an hour of time looking at stages would gain me versus honestly that time just spent literally sleeping and just having more energy, just having the, you know, your, your day's clock start that much later. Um, so I, I just dialed that one in wrong. But again, I mean, I think the, I think the, the performance is not bad. I think I, I'm fairly happy with how I shot the stages. It's just, you know, when, when I can see myself coming into position and I just, I'm like, okay, start shooting, start shooting. Oh, there it is. But at the end of the day, I think the, the, the circumstances, it's one of those matches where really anybody who, <laughs> who got through it and, and, uh, got the t-shirt, so to speak, um, I think will be remembering this match for, for quite a while. And, you know, I got through it. I shot it. I did. Okay. I learned some things. It helped me focus my training going forward. And, and that's really all you can expect from a, from a big match like this. So I think it was worth the trip. I definitely learned some stuff. I got my money's worth. I think the the staff at Low Country did the best they could with a crap situation. I mean, they were, you know, again, th- this match was supposed to be a month earlier when the average rainfall is much lower. Um, and I believe the foot of rain was the outer rain bands of an early tropical depression. Um, so it wasn't even just like a really heavy rainstorm. It was actually the 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 leading edge of hurricane season which we try to schedule around here in the, in the Southeast uh, as much as we can. And uh, COVID just messed that up. And the, the match I think was as good as it could have been. I'm still, I'm, I'm glad they had it rather than canceling it. And I'm looking forward to going back and shooting another match there again sometime when hopefully the, you know, the bays are a little bit drier, but that's ultimately out, out of their control. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. I post all my match videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash USPSA. If you want to talk, my email is podcast at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.